introduce to you our guest speaker this morning, Bob, would you join me? This is Bob Hay and Amy, his wife. And uh, Barb and I actually go back to our college days and seminary days with Bob and Amy. When they came to Columbia, they bought the number 66. Home, number 66 in the CIP village. They bought it from us and I think it served you okay. No yeah, we survived, yeah. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> but I gotta tell you how Bob and I really got close. Mm -hmm. Really close. There was this girl. There's always a girl, right? And it wasn't Barb. And <laughs> we, she and I had been you know, hanging out as friends, and it got to be a little bit more than friends, and we were trying to test where this thing would go, this relationship. Well, one day she had taken an exam. We were out walking down by the river, I think, mm -hmm. and she was really steamed about that exam. And I don't know, I just felt like she needed to cool off a little bit or something, so I just kind of bumped her into the river. <laughs> <laughs> then I didn't think that was going to go over well, so I just moved on back to campus, you know, and I just thought she would simmer down after a while, but she didn't, and <laughs> she baked some brownies, and with those brownies hired Bob and two thugs <laughs> to kidnap me. So I was in the admin building one day, and all of a sudden over my head came this giant mail sack, and they took me to the ground and carried me out and put handcuffs on me in front of me. And then I noticed we were in a car and we were traveling. I was trying to figure where we were going by the roads. And then we got out of the car and I could tell we were out in a pasture somewhere. And we started walking toward the woods. I could see a little bit right down here. And then um, we were going down. I could tell we were going down by the river. And I thought, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> but then there was, they were going to. Uh, put me on, uh, hooked me to a tree with these handcuffs and so they were trying to find this tree or that tree and finally they found a tree and it was only about this big around but I was excited that they would put me around a small tree and then they blindfolded me and left and I looked up that tree and I thought boy what's the chances I could climb this tree and you know so I did and as I was going up I broke off some of the branches that I could and then the smaller ones I kind of folded them up and then I got to the top and my weight pulled that tree over and I was free <laughs> and so I'm heading I think now I got to walk back to campus some couple several miles mm -hmm. and I got these handcuffs on and I'm walking down these country roads I was trying to trying to make it look like I was just walking with my hands <laughs> But some sharp-eyed lady in a farmhouse, maybe she had binoculars anyway, she called the police, there's a convict out here, you know. <laughs> so the next thing is a police car coming up to me, and I thought, okay, this is not going to go well. And anyway, he believed my story enough that I, he told me to get in the car, but I got to ride in the front seat with him, and he says, you know, having handcuffs, told him the whole story, he said, having handcuffs is illegal, would you like to press charges? I said, well, no, not really, but I would like you to scare him a little. So he took me back to campus, and there comes Bob. And I said, that's him. <laughs> and so he pulls over, and we got out, and an officer came up to you. And I didn't hear all that got said. I'm going to let Bob tell about that <laughs> and whatever good came of that. But anyway, that's how Bob and I got really close. <laughs> It's taken me a lot of years to invite him back. <laughs> here he is, and I'm so glad you're here, Bob. Thank and you. We really are good friends, and it's wonderful to see you. And yep. Bob's, you're going to tell us where you've served 10 years in Japan. Yep. And then since then with SIM, mm -hmm. which John and Nancy DeValve were with SIM, mm -hmm. and so he's going to probably fill you in on that. But welcome. We'll, we're we'll, glad to we'll, we'll build those bridges okay. too. So. It is a joy to be here this morning. Um, I have no idea how to follow up that story. Um, the police officer did, in fact, put the fear of God into me. Um, he expressed at that point in time that if charges were pressed, I was old enough, I was 18, I was old enough that it would be on my record from this point forward. And I don't know whether he was a believer or not, or I don't know whether he had any understanding of how the Lord was working in my life and where he was leading me.
But he said, you know that with a permanent record, you would never be able to get a passport or be able to go overseas. You wouldn't be able to get a visa into another country because you'd be a convic convicted felon. So we ha that was very much a come to Jesus moment for me. <laughs> and I, um, yeah, I have respected Paul all through the years. I mean, even before that situation. Um, the reason why the young woman contacted me and my friends, my two other thug friends, um, was because my last name is Hay. And at that point in time, there was a television show called The A-Team. And my friends and I were kind of known as the Hay Team. And we were known for the fun things that we did. And so this was just one example of the craziness. So I learned a lot from that and um, have been very grateful that he said no. <laughs> no to pressing charges. Um, I uh, never again used those handcuffs. And I had them used on me a little bit later. A friend found them and found the keys and used them on me and hung me out to dry on one of the poles on, out in front of one of the girls' dorms. So that was a, a little bit of a comeback on that. But anyway, we, we have uh, walked away from that. <laughs> so it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, yes, what a history. Uh, I have a long history. My parents and grandparents have served with SIM. My grandparents left Scotland in 1917 and went to Nigeria where they served from 1917 until 1965. So they were many years there. My grandparents went into a people group where there was no written language. And contrary to what you might hear in the media, missionaries don't destroy cultures. We um, enhanced them. My grandfather, as he would preach, would translate the scripture that he was going to preach from into the language, get it checked by people, you know, read to them what he was going to say and everything like that. And over the course of 35 or 37 years, translated the New Testament into the Bagi language and served the church there. When he went to work among that people in central Nigeria, um, there were no known believers. The tribe of people had only been discovered by the British colonial forces a few years before. So Grandpa was very instrumental in um, planting the church. There were other missionaries that worked among the same people group as time went on. But um, by, by this time, there are 25 to 30,000 believers among that tribe of people. And they have, um, they, they're even sending out missionaries. So that is really exciting. My father and mother served in Nigeria from 1951 until 1965. Uh, we, my, we came back to the States when I was not quite a year old, and Dad became the North America director of SIM. So in my whole childhood, my whole lifetime, um, SIM has been central. And when I went to Bryan College, I went with the intent to become a pastor, to go through the training that I would need, to lay a foundation to go to seminary, and then in seminary um, become prepared to become a pastor that was a pastor that raised up missionaries within the church. Because as a missionary kid, I grew up with a lot of understanding. I grew up in New Jersey, which I don't like to say in public, especially not in the South. Um, but I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in the church. I grew up at Bible conferences. And we traveled incessantly my entire lifetime. You know, all the way through until we went to college. And then Amy and I, since we've been involved in ministry, so God has been at work in my heart, and I, I love the church, I love the local church, I love how God works in the church and works through the church, and I believe that the local church is the sending agency. And we are involved, Amy and I, working for SIM, working with SIM, we're supported missionaries just like we were when we were on the front lines in Japan. But as we have been involved in ministry, our whole focus has been to figure out ways to strengthen the bonds with local churches, encourage them, and help them. In 2003, we returned from 10 years in Japan. We served there, planted a church in a city called Tokorozawa, 
and the church that we planted by God's grace is still in existence and is growing. It's still about the same size, but that's very typical in Japan because they typically have smaller churches and people rotate because, because of jobs and because of different things. They travel to different locations. So, by God's grace, that has happened. Um, we've been a part of SIM since to the end of 2003, so we're coming up on 20 years in December. And also in December, uh, SIM comes up on 130 years of existence. So it's pretty exciting to see how God has been at work. Um, we, as an agency, started out, the S of Sudan, uh, SIM is Sudan, the I of SIM is Interior, and the M of SIM is Mission, so Sudan Interior Mission. Now we often say SIM stands for sitting in meetings or sleeping in meetings or send in munchies or any other thing we can think of that'll fit together for that. But the, the ministry of SIM from the very beginning has been intentionally um, to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to disciple them and to prepare them to carry that on to the next tribe over the next village over, keep moving through. I, we heard this morning in Sunday school about the church planting plan in the French Alps is to go down the valley, right? You go from this city to the next city and to the next city. Well, that same idea was part of the core. Today's SIM is now the product of multiple mergers through the years. And so from being Africa-centric as we were from 1893 until 1982, we moved then in 1982 into South America through a merger with a ministry that was there. And then in 1989, we moved into Asia where um, the focus of ministry in the Indian subcontinent has now grown throughout all of Asia and Central Asia. Um, but through the years, the Lord has brought several different agencies together. And so we're actually the product of four agencies and three major mergers and a lot of partnerships along the way. Uh, we have a, a ministry force of about 4,000 people, not from the U.S. We have just under 800 members from the United States. And the way we approach ministry is working together on multicultural teams. So there isn't a single team in the world that is monocultural. Every one of our teams is multicultural. That's all, all sorts of wonderful and all sorts of challenging. Because not only are we working through the cross-cultural stuff in the host culture, but we're also working through the cross-cultural stuff with our teammates. And it's much easier to focus on the culture than it is to focus on each other. And as a result of that, the challenges that are there, member care is really important. How we serve, our, serve each other, how we serve our missionaries so that the longevity of ministry can continue. And when we came back to the States in 2003, we were with another agency and the Lord changed our direction. That's a long story for another day. But the Lord changed our direction and returned us to SIM. And for me, it was coming back to my roots. But he put us into a ministry, um, put me into a ministry of working with people as they're onboarding into SIM. And then now I'm deputy director of member care. So I oversee with a team of people the care of all of our US-based missionaries. Each of the other sending agencies has their own member care team. So we're not slighting anybody. We're just each one of us focuses on our own ways and the legalities and all of those kinds of things. So SIM has been multinational, multicultural, and interdenominational since the beginning. And we are still pioneering. We are moving into places um, around the globe that, um, yeah, that Jesus isn't known. See, the reason why we do this is that we're convinced that no one should live and die without hearing God's good news. And because of this, we believe that God has called us to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ where he is least known. And Sim USA's personal, um, purpose statement, kind of growing out of that one, is by prayer, we recruit, prepare, and journey with Christians sent by local churches as we make disciples of Jesus Christ in communities where he is least known. So there's a partnership that's part, all of this, right? There's a partnership, there's cooperation. We have the conviction of the lostness 
of people who do not know Jesus. There is no other way, right? There, there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so our responsibility is to point people to Jesus, and that's what we do. Um, my particular team has also developed our own um, purpose statement. It says, we journey with teammates as we help them to be resilient, effective, and joyful as they serve with SIM. I would love to be able to tell you stories of the things that, that we have seen over the last several years and the things that the Lord has allowed us to do in ministry in helping our missionaries. But we don't have the time for that, and this is the time to spend in God's Word. So I've said all of that to lay a foundation, to show um, why missions, why do we do what we do, because we are convinced that people are dying without Jesus Christ. And they need to hear, they need to enter into that. John Piper wrote a book in the 1990s called Let the Nations Be Glad. Have any of you read it? Several of you have? Okay. Um, if you haven't um, read it, find the people whose hands just went up and ask to borrow their copy. It's just such an excellent book. And in that book, one of the things he talks about is that when Jesus um, taught us what we now refer to as the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, the very first two petitions of the prayer focus in on all that we should be doing as followers of Jesus. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth. And then yes, you know how the rest of the prayer goes, but at this focal point, at the front end of it, is all about the glory of God. See, missions doesn't exist because it's a good thing to do. Missions doesn't exist because we feel compassion. Compassion is definitely what we feel and it definitely does drive us. But missions doesn't exist for the purpose of exhibiting our compassion. Missions exist because the glory of God is not made evident in every location, in every place. People from every tongue and tribe and nation have yet to hear. Um, if we were going to have a, a little bit in, of interaction, I would pick, ask for 10 volunteers to come up. And with you all up here, I would have you line up in front. And I would divide you into four groups. And one of the 10 would be at this far end over here. And that one person is representing all the people in the globe on this earth who not only know Jesus, but have said yes to him and are living for him and are reaching out to people around them, but living for him, one person out of 10. Then the next grouping I would have, I would have two people and they would be standing next to them because the level of access is the same. But these two people standing side by side, they know about Jesus, but they don't really care. They may come to church regularly. They may be part of a church service. They may en engage in worship and enjoy the music. But taking it any farther than that general kind of understanding, those two are just sort of meh. So you have one over here who's completely, wholeheartedly devoted to following Jesus. And you have two here who are meh. And then you'd have a group of four people and these four standing together, they have access to the gospel. They have access to the other two groupings. They have, they have the ability to hear the gospel if they wanted to, but they don't have any reason to want to. They don't care. So one, two, four. Now, I'm not a math major, but I think all of y'all can see with me that there's three people left. And those three people standing over here are the farthest away from the access. And these three people over here have no access to the gospel. They live in the places around the world where they don't have access to the internet. They live in the places around the world that even if they did have access to the internet, they would have no reason to know why to look into finding out more about Jesus. Did you know that 87% of Muslims in Southeast Asia have no known believer within maybe 20 miles, 30 miles of where they live? Did you know that um, also 87% of the Buddhists in the world 
has nobody near them who knows Jesus. Have no opportunity to talk to somebody who knows Jesus. Yes, they can play with the internet or they can play with um, cable TV or whatever, you know, they look, look around or listen to the radio, but why would they stop on something that they have no interest or no knowledge of? So the need is really incredibly great, right? So the, th the three that are standing over here have no access and no knowledge. So why missions? Because as John Piper says, the missions isn't the most important part of the church's ministry. Worship is. Worshiping God is. And we who have been able to benefit from that relationship that we have, we are able to enter into that. We've also been entrusted by God to carry this message forward. So all that was leading into where we're going today, into the passage that I would like us to look at this morning. People are living and dying without Jesus, but also Jesus commanded us to go. Um, I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew 28. And we're going to look at the Great Commission, because what missions conference would happen without at least a reference of Matthew 28? I figured we'd start you off with some thoughts on this. Um, I want to, well, I want to tell you one more little piece of statistical information. Um, Lifeway and Gallup, several years ago, about three or four years ago, I read the statistic. They did a, an analysis of American Christianity. And in that analysis of American Christianity, they realized that 76%, 76 of the church in America cannot define the Great Commission. Now, my assumption is that y'all are part of the 24%. From what I've heard everything this morning, you're all a part of that 24%. So like Vince Lombardi used to do when he would start to train his football players, he would start off every season by walking into the room with all of his star players, all of the, everyone gathered around, walk in with a football under his arm and he would hold up the football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, duh, it looks like a football. We know that we're gathered here to t study about a football. You know, why are you telling us this, coach? Come on, coach. T he starts off with that because it is such a basic thing that we tend not to think of it. We tend not to really wrestle with what we're thinking about. When you think about the Great Commission, for example, how many instances of the Great Commission do you know? Hmm. Did you know that there are five passages? Several of you, I see some heads shaking, you probably sat under some of the same teaching I did years and years ago. Um, there are five different passages, and each one chronologically happened at a different point in time. And the, each of the four Gospels records a different facet, and the book of Acts records a different facet. On the day of Jesus' resurrection, he met two men walking on the road, or two people walking on the road down to Emmaus, and he had a conversation with them as they went down. And then he said something that immediately just disappeared. And then they ran the seven miles from Emmaus back up to Jerusalem, which is all uphill going back. They ran the seven miles back up there. They gathered with the other believers. And as they were telling them about what they saw in Luke chapter 24, um, all of a sudden Jesus appears in their midst. And in Luke chapter 24, uh, it says this. 24, verse, beginning with verses 44 and following. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, the name, um, in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay here in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
on the very first day, the day that Jesus rose, he proved, he opened their minds so that they would understand, without a doubt, that everything from Genesis through the end of Malachi, everything in the scriptures pointed forward to him and what he has done. They see him, he's there, his hands, his feet, they see him. But now their minds are opened to understand. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, um, the prayer of the psalmist is, open my eyes that I may see and behold wonderful things from your word. And this is what Jesus has done. He opened their minds to understand that. Um, that same day, um, probably at that exact same moment, uh, Jesus also said in Mark chapter 16 verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. That's the scope. So the first was the biblical basis, and the second is the scope. Go and do this. Preach the gospel. To whom? To everyone. Everyone. All the people. Interesting thing in Greek, the, the word all means all. It does in English too, by the way. Um, all means all. That means that there's nothing to be left out. So when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, what was he telling them to do? To stay put? To huddle together and protect themselves? No. He was releasing them to go and to carry the knowledge, everything that he had shared with them, everything that he had revealed to them and empowered them to go. He did tell them to wait. Remember in Acts 1.8, he also said that. In Acts 1.8, he said, um, but you will receive power. We're going to get to that in a moment. But he challenged them to wait for the, until, um, until the Holy Spirit was to come upon them. They didn't know yet what Pentecost meant. But in 40 days after Jesus, I mean 50 days after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, 40 days after that was the ascension, then there's 10 more days, and on that 10th day, the Holy Spirit, everything changed. When Jesus died on the cross and the, and the certificate of debt was canceled, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the, the, the curse of, of death was completely demolished. And when that happened, Everything changed. And what was promised at Mount Sinai was made a reality on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came upon each of the believers. Prior to that, in the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit came on somebody for a particular purpose and a particular time. But in the New Testament era, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and seals us at that moment. And we enter into a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I hope you can catch my excitement in this. I hope you can, you can hear in my voice the excitement of re the realization. Because this is something that is so familiar to all of us, right? You've, you've heard this before. You've grown up in the church, perhaps. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you came to faith later in life. But you've, you've heard this before. But has it reached into the core of who you are? Has it stirred you? Has it challenged you? The Holy Spirit is at work in us. So, the biblical basis, the scope. Eight days later, apparently, Jesus reappeared to the disciples. We don't know if he met anybody during the week, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday, I don't know. But the group was gathered together a week later, and Thomas was with them at that point. Remember, he, he's the one who said, well, unless I see his hands and put my hand in his side, I won't believe that this is true, you know, because I'm, I'm doubting Thomas. And no, he didn't say that but it's probably there in the Greek if you dig deep enough. Um, he, was, um, he was expressing what many of them felt. And Jesus appeared to them, and he spoke to Thomas. He didn't rebuke Thomas. Doubts are not rebuke-worthy. We need to wrestle with our doubts. I, I can pretty well say that I haven't gone a week in my adult life when I haven't wrestled with something that has raised a question that I can't quite put, wrap my head around. 
And here I am in a role where I'm often influencing people and speaking to people and listening to them as they're sharing their stories and the things that are heavy on their heart. And I wonder how in the world does this make sense? God, you are good and what you do is good. God, you are faithful. Your loving kindness, your steadfast love is everlasting. But yet, a friend's wife dies. But yet, a young woman serving in a particular location is sexually assaulted. But yet, there's war going on in the neighborhood. You know? God, you are good and what you do is good. And it's okay that I can't figure it out because if I could figure it out, what kind of God would he be? I have to come back to the knowledge of that, his goodness and I have to rest on the bedrock of that knowledge that he is good and what he has revealed in his word to us and he has given to us. That is what we can stand firm on. So Thomas is there and Jesus appears in their midst and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So as, as that, that little two-letter word, word, two word, as, means in like manner, in this way. Well, how did the Father send him? Well, the Father gave him the authority and entrusted that authority and told him to go. And the Father also showed him that he could become human and incarnate himself in the people, among the people, to be like us, to walk with us, to breathe like us, to experience life like us. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's an incarnational model. When Amy and I went to Japan in 1992, we had a, th a three-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and we went from functioning adults who understood how to, to navigate life, and we arrived in Japan where we became our toddlers. <laughs> we couldn't communicate, we couldn't read signs, we didn't know what was going on around us, and um, all the different things that came in and all the disorientation that came with that. And our boys would look up at us like, help us, what, what are we doing, what's going on? And we'd have to look down at them and say, we don't know, but here we go. And that was, is what it means to follow Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth, he came as a baby, he came helpless and he grew and he became a man and he entered into ministry. And all the way through his life, his father was guiding him. And as the father sent him, John 20, 21 and through 23, Jesus said, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. Incarnational ministry. Connecting with people where they are and sharing Jesus, sharing himself with them. At some point in the sequence of things, we come to a gathering in Galilee and more than 500 people were gathered together in the, at this time, at least according to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. And in this gathering of people, we find the mandate. And we're going to come back to this in a minute, so I'm not going to um, unpack anything in this, but just understand that Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we find the mandate, which is greater in more impactful than a command. A command is how you carry out the mandate. So understanding that, we'll come back to that in a minute. On day 40, we have the promise. And in this point, in um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, remain here in Jerusalem, but soon the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. Here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, over there, and then to the remotest places of the earth. I love that. It, it's, it's a command, but it's also a promise. And he says in Matthew 28, 20, that I will be with you always. So the four Gospels, the book of Acts, kind of tells us that this football that we're, we're looking at, this thing that we already know, but we need to think about again, kind of tells us that this is a high priority. Bill Larkin was a professor at CIU when I was there, and I studied under him, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. And at the time he was writing it, I was part of a class that um, 
as we were studying the book of Acts, it was a Greek class, so we spent a lot of time going into, in depth, and it was a lot of fun to spend that time with him. We didn't actually, I didn't realize that he was writing the book of the commentary on the book of Acts as we were in class with him. But I later on found it. But I remember hearing him say, and it was written in the book, the fact that the Great Commission is the last instruction of the risen, now ascended, and soon returning Lord gives it great weight. He is not randomly mentioning or an optional ministry activity for people with an interest in other cultures or churches with extra funds that they have available to them. The Great Commission is the primary task that Jesus left for us to do. And when I think about the parables, especially in the book of Luke, but the parables that Jesus taught, they all revolved around the kingdom of God. But they often had the theme of, will you be found faithful when I return? Now, in the story, the master comes home. Does he find faithfulness or does he find disobedience? That's a pretty high motivator for me to realize that um, this is something that he himself emphasized so deeply. So let's go back to Matthew 28 in the last couple, few minutes as we tie this together. We have this mandate, and it is bigger than just simply go and do this. The bigger part of it is, I think we can find with all the words, all, that shows up in here. In Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 through 20, we read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish context. I think you all are familiar with that. John wrote his gospel to the Ephesian context and many Greek-thinking and Greek-speaking peoples. So you have slightly different emphases that come out in these. Mark and Luke also had their specific things. Mark's gospel was written for the common man in the Roman Empire. So he writes very short, quick sentences, quick stories. He probably listened to Peter a lot and then wrote down the stories that Peter recorded. And there's a lot of energy and a lot of action. What Matthew does is he's trying to show to a Jewish population how Jesus connects back to all the prophecies in the Old Testament. And in many cases through the book of Matthew, he says, and this was done to fulfill this passage, or this was done to fulfill that passage. And it's always bothered me that he didn't do that for us here. And the reason he didn't do that is because immediately when Jesus appeared to the, the group and began to speak to them, they automatically knew what he was referring to. We're far enough removed from it that we may not catch that. When Jesus stood in their midst and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he then says, go therefore. But before we get to the therefore, when he said all authority in heaven and earth, the audience, the 11 disciples who were there, Matthew's clear, the, the 11 were present. The other 500 or so that Paul refers to, who may or may not have been present, they would have known immediately what Jesus was referring to. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, there's a vision that Daniel records. Now you remember that Daniel was the one who had all sorts of visions, right? He, he saw a lot of different things. Um, he interpreted vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and, and the Lord used him in multiple ways. Remember that Daniel was the one who referred to the Messiah as the Son of Man. That was the term, the phrase that Jesus used for himself all the way through the Gospels. 
So when the, he says, Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision of God on his throne, in the throne room. And leading up to verse 13, he describes all of that. But in verses 13 and 14, one like the Son of Man comes in a cloud and approaches the throne. And the Ancient of Days, and that's the title that Daniel uses for God, the Father, the Ancient of Days got up and bestowed upon this Son of Man, all kingdom and power and authority and dominion. So when Jesus said this, he's pointing back to that incident that they, as Jewish kids growing up in their synagogues and hearing the, hearing the gospel, hearing the Old Testament read to them, they would have known immediately that Jesus is connecting the dots. The technical term in Jewish um, usage is the word metalepsis. It's a word I like to say and I like to tell people about it. it, it it's, it's that thing that you have with your friends when you have an inside joke, when you only say a little bit and immediately the other person knows exactly what you're talking about. In an oral society like the Hebrew people were part of, that's what they did. When Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't go through the whole rest of the psalm, but all of those who were around them went on all the way through the psalm, remembering, recalling what it said. And when he said that, he's connecting him, he himself was connecting for them that what Psalm 22 was talking about is what he was doing in that moment. So that's what Matthew does for us here. He's connecting these dots. And Jesus said, all authority, all dominion, all power, all of this has been given to me. And on the basis of this being given to me, I am now saying to you, go, wherever it is you are going, make disciples. And the command for us is to make disciples. Preaching the gospel, baptizing believers, and going from here to there is all part of how that is done. But the focal point of it is to make disciples. When we think of this authority that, that Jesus speaks of, and then we think about our dreams and our hopes and our plans and our fears and our family and all of the things that affect our lives, I have to ask the question. I have to go from teaching to preaching and from preaching to meddling. I have to go to the point to say, do you realize that there isn't anything that affects your life that is outside of Jesus' authority? Remember that Jesus is the creator. Remember that it was through his words, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, it was through his words that everything that exists comes into being. Psalm 100 verse 3 says that, he says, know that the Lord, he is God. He is the one who has created us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. What that means, brothers and sisters, friends, what that means is that every aspect of our lives comes under the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm pausing here just to let that sink in. Because when we realize that we are not going out on our own authority, we are not going out to do something that, um, that we thought of or we thought was a good idea, but we are going out to do what the Lord Jesus Christ himself commissioned us to do. He transferred the authority to carry this out, and we are going under his authority, not on our own power. We are going out under him as we go to speak and to preach. Um, one thing that was mentioned in Sunday school this morning is the fact that the greatest deterrent for missionaries, you want to say it again? <laughs> the greatest deterrent for missionaries is mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. Parents who are unwilling to release their kids. Over the last 20 years, I have worked with many people who were onboarding into SIM, walking through their whole application process, walking through the things that their families um, 
the things that they were challenged to work through to get there. And in walking through all of that, nine uh, times out of 10, the greatest hurdle that every missionary has wrestled with was not raising the funds to go, but feeling released by their family. Now, I go from preaching to meddling again. Have you thought about that? How are you praying for your own kids? How are you praying for your nieces and nephews? How are you praying for your friends' kids? How are you praying for each other? Praying that the Lord would release them to go and to serve? Or praying for them to have a safe, cushy, comfortable life here? Yeah, I, I went there, yes. It's hard. Amy and I went to Japan in 1992. My father, at that point in time, was the international director of SIM. And we went with a different agency because, you know, my grandfather's a pioneer, my father's the international director. I'm not either of them, so how is this gonna work? That was one of my fears. So the irony and the humor and the beauty of God was that he took us out of SIM for 15 years and then brought us back into SIM. So when he brought us back, we came in and we were enough removed from my father's leadership that it wasn't, I'm in the family business because it is the family business. Very clearly God led us. Very clearly, step by step, we had to wrestle with that. But my dad told us when, we, when he, they came to visit us in Japan, my dad said the hardest thing that he ever experienced was watching us and then back in that day, they could actually go to the gate. So it was watching us walk down the gangway, holding our, grand, our, our kids, their grandkids, and our grandkids looking at them like, Grandpa, aren't you coming too? And watching that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And on the basis of that, I'm telling you to go and make disciples. Going is part of that process. Baptizing is part of that process. And teaching all that I commanded is part of that process. But all of this comes with a promise. And this is what I want you to take away from everything I've said. The promise is, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, we read that, those are words. They're black and white, they're on the page, or they may be red and white depending on the version you have. Um, but there are words on a page. What we don't catch in English is that in the language that Jesus would have spoken, Aramaic, um, and then it was written in Greek, but going from that, what Jesus actually literally, word by word said, I, the one with you, I am to the end of the age. That's the literal word for word translation of what's being said here. I want you to pause with me for just a second on that thought. When he says, I, the one with you, I am, He's declaring at that point, I am the I am. I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh, better pronunciation. I am he who is. And he uses exactly the same phrasing as he did when he spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. When Moses said, whom shall I say is sending me? Who are you, God? The Israelites in Egypt were more Egyptian than Israelite. They had not yet been pulled together as a nation. They were tribes, but they had not yet met their God. They knew the, gods, the God of their fathers, Elohim, but they didn't know Yahweh. Jesus is saying, to the disciples who are gathered together. Matthew recorded it faithfully and it's been handed down through the centuries. So you and I today, on this day in November of 2023, we can hear Jesus saying to us, in the same way that I was with Moses, I am with you. And my promise to be with you means that everything that comes under my authority I am with you in that. No matter what it is that you encounter, no matter how scary it is, 
no matter how hard it is, I am with you. Jesus' parables um, often talked about the kingdom, often talked about and asked the question about the faithfulness of the people listening. Making disciples is not an option for us to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. So I ask the question, whom have you discipled? And I ask this question not just of the older parental age of people, but even those who are young. 14 and 15, you can be discipling your friends around you. 12 and 13, yes, you can do that. Make it a lifestyle choice. Not everyone, who, within the sound of my voice, not everyone everywhere is called to go overseas or go cross-culturally or do whatever. The command is that we be obedient, that we go while we're going, wherever it is we're going, whether it's to Starbucks or to Walmart, as we're walking through everything on a day-to-day -day basis, we be discipling people, pointing people to a deeper relationship with Jesus if they already know him, or introducing them to Jesus if they do not. This morning in, in Sunday school, our brother talked about the four men that carried the, the stretcher, the, the bed of the man, who the paralytic, who they brought to Jesus. And he talked about five C's. I thought there were seven C's in the world, but there are four C's, but you actually threw in a fifth one, didn't you, on commitment? So you have the four that are hitting the four corners, and then there's the overall or overarching idea of commitment. But in this idea of conviction or compassion, cooperation, well, I guess it is just four. So I'm not good at math. That's why I do English and I do grammar and I do language and I do other things, but I don't do good with math. But there's this co the cooperation of working together, but it all is undergirded by commitment. And as we walk together, as we serve together, how can we spur each other on to love and to good works to serve God most faithfully? Because he has promised that he is with us. We don't need to fear what we don't know because he already knows about it. And what we can't see, we will, get, we will see when we take the steps of obedience. So trust him. Obey him. Enjoy him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time to look into your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the ways that you are at work in our lives and in the people around us. And we trust you, Father. We trust you that what you say you will do, you will do, and you've promised that you will be with us. So as we reflect on this passage and what you are doing, may we know your goodness. May we know your steadfast love. May we recognize that your authority extends through your love, through your faithfulness, through your goodness, and extends to all who do not yet know you. Guide us, we pray, in your name. Amen.